welcome to Ivy League Murders, where we deep dive on cases related to academia. My name is Sarah Elkhorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. My name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami grad, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. In Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. We got some feedback here, Laura, about our audio, which was totally legit. Completely. We're going to do a redo here because we don't want to release anything that's not up to par. So we're going to do it again, Sarah, and we're back in Colerain for our redo. Absolutely. So we're back in the country and we're going to give it another shot here. And so let's get right to it. So this week we're covering Princeton's Thomas Gilbert Jr., the dark side of privilege. It was January 4th, 2015. Thomas and Shelley Gilbert were enjoying a relaxing afternoon in their Upper East Side apartment. Their 30-year-old son, Thomas Jr., or Tommy, came to visit them. Tommy had suffered bouts of mental illness and would disappear at times, so the Gilberts greeted him with a mixture of relief and apprehension. Can you get a sandwich and a Coke for me, Mom? Shelley thought that the request was odd, but went out anyway to a nearby deli to get Tommy a sandwich. When she came back, she found her husband shot in the head with a gun in his hand. This is the story of Thomas Gilbert Jr. and Sr. So we like to talk a little bit about the universities that are involved because we are Ivy League murders. So this week, it's Princeton. And Thomas Gilbert Sr. and Thomas Gilbert Jr. both went to Princeton. Princeton was found in 1746. And I thought it was amusing in looking at Princeton that at one point, the governor in that part of New Jersey, or the governor of New Jersey, rather, was a guy named John Belcher. And so (laughs) the people at the college approached him and said, hey, you know, we want to name this after you. And Belcher was like, no, that's a terrible idea. Right. They would have been the Belchers. Yes, that's right. Belcher College. So eventually, in the late 19th century, the college relocated to Princeton, New Jersey, and then took on that name. And like many of our schools, it's just got incredible alumni. Jeff Bezos went there. Michelle Obama went there. Alan Turing went there. I know, which is very interesting. Because uh, Turing was British. So anyway. And then my favorite alumni, who actually didn't graduate. Oh, he's a dropout. Is F. Scott Fitzgerald. Dun, 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 dun. Yes. Okay. So in this week, we were talking about also two Princeton graduates, father and son, both named Thomas Gilbert. So Thomas Sr. and Shelley Gilbert, his wife, had high hopes for their golden boy, Tommy, who was born in 1985. Uh, And he was born in a place uh, called Tuxedo Park in New York. And can you tell us a little bit about Tuxedo Park, Laura? Well, actually, yeah, it's a very unique place. And actually, it was Tuxedo Park was created in 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 about 1886. And it was actually developed as a private community. And for, for actually the really the ultra wealthy industrialists. So this is where the Vanderbilts, the Morgans, you know, had second homes. And when we say second homes, 
picture stone castles on lakes. <laughs> I mean, we are talking mansions. M no, they're not mansions. They're they're castles, right. Laura. They're castles. And know? I mean, now Tuxedo Park is a private community. It's a fenced off private community. The area of Tuxedo has fallen somewhat in decline, and the depression affected this area a great deal. But there is still a very wealthy community within Tuxedo, which is Tuxedo Park. It's kind of like a gated a community. A gated community. Yeah. And Tommy was born in what, you know, his father called a mini mansion. Ah, okay. Um, and Thomas Sr., you know, had gone to uh, Andover, then on to Princeton, then on to Harvard Business School. And then he had created a hedge fund called Wainscott. And their lifestyle, you know, is ostensibly enviable. You know, uh, they kind of, they live in the Upper East, East Side. They had a place on the Hamptons. They were part of these private clubs in New York, um, all the right schools. And pedigree was very important to Thomas. Very Senior. important. And that's why he sent his son to all the right schools and the right clubs. That's right. And so, you know, Tommy was a bright, good-looking kid, followed in his father's footsteps by first going to Buckley Private School. And um, this is a very exclusive private school in Manhattan. That's right. And then on to Deerfield Academy and we visited Deerfield. What did, what did you think, Laura? I mean, it's beautiful. Absolutely picturesque is the word. And I mean, I mean picturesque. I mean, it looks like looks like you're walking into a postcard. It really does. It looks like a museum of a town, basically, like a typical New New England. Uh, it's just absolutely gorgeous. Right, so. and this is an exclusive private boarding school with a price tag of about, you know, fifty something thousand dollars a year to board. Um, you know, and these are the schools that are the feeding. You know, these are the schools that feed the Ivies. That's that's right. And um, so, but it was at Deerfield that where his parents start to see cracks in the veneer for Tommy. Right? I mean, they they start to see there's some issues already at Deerfield. And you had said, which I thought was interesting, that you know, sometimes mental illness, particularly schizophrenia, starts to manifest in the late in in the teens. In the late adolescence, and we do start to see some of the signs with with Tommy. You know, he starts to socially isolate. He starts to develop a lot of phobias. And, you know, they parents, you know, they do encourage him to seek help. He does seek help. Um, I'm not diagnosing him as schizophrenia. I am obviously um, these are diagnoses that he received elsewhere. But I think he was actually under a lot of stress as well. He was taking four AP classes. He was trying he was to get actually, early admission to he, Princeton. He was actually, but he was also a big brother to an eight-year-old boy. Right. He so. was active in the community. He was active at the school. So his parents did. You know, it was easy to chalk up some of what was going on to just pressure. I mean, I my daughter just got into college. I know how stressful this can be. And, I mean, you got into an Ivy League school. You know the pressures of, of you know, of taking these type of classes. So it was easy to dismiss at this point some of this behavior. But he was starting to develop some pretty deep phobias like germophobia and, you know. Right. And he was, you know, he, he was kind of a friendly man about town, but he didn't seem to have very many close friends. Um, and he does get accepted to Princeton early acceptance. That's right. And it, where he becomes an economics major. And um, and so at this point, though, it takes him about six years to graduate from right. Princeton. 
And um, and he has his first violent incident, and that's May of 2007. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, one of the reasons that, you know, we don't know for sure, but that perhaps it took him so long to graduate was because a few weeks before his initial graduation date, he's arrested for possession of cocaine and mushrooms, and he winds up assaulting the EMT who's trying to help him. And, you know, this results in, you know, community service and other, you know, things before the case is eventually dismissed. But this is the first time we see him exhibit some erratic and And, and violent violent behavior. That's right. And then at that point, the parents uh, involve a a lawyer is involved by the name of Spiro. Right. And they kind of, you know, at this point, they start to seek, you know, some legal advice about how they can really get him help. But he's 18 at this point, so they're fairly limited on what they can do to get him help because it's, you know, he's an adult and he has to be cooperative and they're pretty limited on what they can do as far as getting him involuntarily held. That's right. And so it does take him, it does take him another two years to graduate from Princeton. And, and after that point, you know, what's his path after, after graduation? Well, not, you know, not too much. He just kind of, you know, goes back and forth between Manhattan and the Hamptons and he surfs and he goes from club to club and, you know, he doesn't do too much. I mean, he does set up, you know, he does set, you know, set up a, what does he set up? Oh, uh, he uh, he sort of tells people that he's setting up a a, um, a hedge fund, um, and I think people aren't really buying it. It's uh, they sort of take it with a grain of salt. Um, you know, uh, Tommy is really mostly kind of surfing and hanging out at clubs. And I just want to also stop Lauren and say that. Uh, apropos of nothing, uh, you know, Thomas Gilbert is a very, very good looking guy. He's about 6'3". He looks like a cast member from Game of Thrones. I mean, the guy is absolutely like model gorgeous. Um, And I think this almost hid some of his mental illness signs because he, you know, it was almost like, how can this perfectly well-bred, gorgeous young man have anything wrong with him? That's right. And it, I, I just have to say, too, I have encountered this in my line of work as a private investigator, that when you have a client, and I've had clients who are are very good looking. I, I hate to say it, but I feel like it holds sway with the, with the jury sometimes that they it's it's sort of hard to believe that somebody that would look so good kind of from the outside like like Thomas Gilbert did. He was good looking, good schools, well educated, great family that, you know, that there could be anything anything wrong. And um and you know, but I I think at this point too he was dating a lot of beautiful women, woman, you know, he was, you know, this as, you know, sort of a great quote unquote wingman, you know, I'm sure a lot of his friends like hung out with him because he was like a, you know, get the women to come over kind of thing. Oh yeah. You know, he I, was charming and you, you know, he was, he was, that's what they said. He was a great wingman. And, you know, he, they said, you know, there was something a little off about him, but it wasn't super noticeable at this point. And, you know, you have to understand, too, that the Gilberts were part of these very elite clubs in New- in Manhattan, like the River Club um, in Manhattan and the Maidstone in-, in East Hampton. And these are clubs that, 
you were telling me, Laura, that are about $10,000 a year, which is, I mean, not that much for these people, to tell you the truth. Mm. These, this is like beer money for these. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's not about like, the cost of they admission. Probably, they, they probably spend more on caviar for a lot of people who are part of this club a year than 10000 No, I'm sure their barbells at the clubs are far higher than $10,000, but it's really, a, it's really, it has nothing to do. It's the exclusivity of the clubs. You know, it's the fact that you couldn't get into these clubs if you wanted to. You have to be... You have you to have know, letters of referral. Right, you have to be invited in. You kind of, you have to be, this is this is high exclusivity at a high, at a high level. Um, and, you know, and even even owning a home, I mean, River Houses, a river club is, is part of a larger complex in Manhattan called the River House. Even if you live in River House, there's no guarantee. I mean, celebrities have been, have tried to join these clubs and were, were turned away. Oh, so, yeah. I and, mean... they, you know, it reminds me a little bit of the Woodwards, you know, how the Woodwards, you know, they had the set of people who lots of money lots of but very very closed very cloistered they kept it within their circles and it's interesting to me that that is still going on in in new york and it wasn't only in manhattan it's also in east hampton there was a club called maidstone yes and the same thing you owning a home in that area did not assure you uh, acceptance into the maidstone club it was actually I mean, you know, people like Aaron Lauder, the, you know, heir to the Lauder makeup uh, fortune is a member there. I mean, these are very exclusive clubs. Right, exactly. Um, and then at some point, uh, Tommy Gilbert reconnects with Peter Smith, who, and they, they had both gone to Buckley together. Right. They, they were both, you know, members of the, their families were friends, members of the same club same social circle i think he may have even run into smith at either the river club or the mates right right they were in the same social circles Mm -hmm. and uh and peter smith and he i think peter smith was almost kind of like an apologist for for tommy gilbert in some ways i mean tommy was a little odd a little bit of an oddball and he peter smith really kind of like oh tommy's just like that he's you know he's got a few issues you know he's he a gave good him guy the benefit of the doubt he did yeah and they eventually become roommates in williamsburg and this is going well for a while and it kind of starts to deteriorate after a, a you know a surf trip to costa rica and it, there there's also a a a woman lizzie uh lizzie frazier who uh, Tommy was involved with and sort of accuses Peter Smith of flirting with. And Lizzie Frazier has, she's been called the ghost of Edie Sedgwick. And, you know. Which, who is, if anyone doesn't know, is it was Andy Warhol's muse, was a very wealthy society girl, kind of gone bad, who I'm extremely obsessed with. Oh, totally obsessed with. Yeah. <laughs> and And I've posted pictures on Instagram of her and... But this was really all in Tommy's head because Peter was not interested in in Lizzie. So he's really starting to get, you know, a a little bit delusional in his head and imagine things. They are not really happening. I think, though, we had talked about this before, this whole situation between Gilbert Smith 
and Lizzie Frazier in the mix and East Hampton and Manhattan. It all circles back to me, in my mind, to F. Scott Fitzgerald, also a Princeton graduate. And the, um, the, the glamour, they're young, they're beautiful, there's this love triangle, there's... Um, you know, there it's it's East Egg, West Egg, which is a reference, you know, to the Great Gatsby. Yeah, I think that I mean, I think part of the fascination with this case, and probably part of the reason it's being made into a film, is because he really Gilbert really is right out of an F. Scott Fitzgerald novel. You know, the the glamour of New York. The you know he's charming and handsome, and he has the right pedigree, and you know, yet we have the tragedy. And part of that tragedy is that, uh, you know, apparently, you know, Gilbert would watch Saturday Night Live and think that they were making up the skits about him. And he was even thinking about hiring an, an entertainment lawyer to sue SNL for the skits. I mean, that's the level of delusion that we're, we're talking about here. And, and he starts to kind of deteriorate after this. He takes a flagpole from the front of Peter's house and in the Hamptons and impales the front door. And the families don't go to the police. They kind of want to handle it amongst themselves, separately. And Peter is kind of telling people that Tommy's deteriorating and people don't really believe him. Because of his... Because appearances, appearances lie. are deceptive, <laughs> you know? but... On October 3rd of 2013, after a premiere of a movie that Tommy had was an extra in, um, as Smith emerged from his apartment, he was attacked by Tommy, and Tommy broke his nose and gave him a concussion. And, you know, friends who spoke to them both that night said Tommy was just on an insane diatribe, just going, you know, just going kind of crazy on the phone, and... By the next day, he seemed completely unaware of the gravity of the situation and just was asking and was just asking, like, what's wrong? Why can't why won't Peter be my friend? So he was wondering, you know, why he didn't why wouldn't Peter be my friend? But, you know, this time the police did get involved and Peter called the police and he got a he got a restraining order against Tommy and so things, you know, things now, this time the police were involved and things were, you know, escalated. And I think it was a real turning point, yet, you know, again, for, for Tommy, where people really started to get the level of, uh, of the mental illness. But he was still dating women. I think he had, he, he had a girlfriend, um, Anna Rothschild of the Rothschild banking family. And Anna Rothschild was... She was kind of a cougar, Laura. I mean, she was 20 years his senior. She was a cougar. Yeah. And um, and a, a real New York socialite, really much, you know, big part of the scene. And um, but and he um, at this point, too, he goes and I mean, so Tommy's good looks are still pulling the women in. But I think even, you know, I, I think that people uh, would be so attracted to his looks, but so kind of repelled by him after about five minutes because they could tell like something really was up. And it, of course, at this point, Peter Smith wants nothing to do. No, with nothing him. to do with him. He he had been like, you know, he had really been Tommy's like 
apologist in some ways. And at this point, he cuts all ties. He realizes that's it. Well, right. I mean, he has a restraining order against him. So that's it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's done. And um, so, uh, you know, in May 2014, Tommy answers a Facebook ad. And this is pretty scary, Sarah. And in order to avoid the background checks and the gun laws of New York, which make it virtually impossible to own a handgun, um, he answers a Facebook ad and buys a gun. And you can, you know, with private gun ownership and buying a gun, you know, privately through these ads, you can get around these background checks. And this is pretty scary because... It's terrifying. This way he was able to purchase this it was a glock 22 right and he was able to purchase this privately and you know john j bennett in ohio said oh i didn't think anything was that odd that this guy from new york wanted to drive to ohio to pick up this gun well yeah gun laws are handgun laws in in new york are very very strict it's very difficult to get to get a uh a handgun but it's terrifying to me that somebody with you know thomas gilbert's level of mental illness is able to to get a gun I mean, yeah, he paid you know. 575 dollars for it he 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 picked up the gun and he went back he drove back to new york and who knows what his thinking behind the gun and we'll we'll get into that a little bit later but he is escalating at this point and and um you know this he is escalating i mean he has a restraining order out against him he has and this is all happening at this time that he's purchasing the gun. And, you know, this and, you know, this is what's going on at this time. And, and not long after, a few months later, Sarah, on September 15th at 535 a.m., when a window is broken at Peter Smith's home, which is actually a historical home in the Hamptons, which is actually listed in the Registry of Historical Homes, and a window's broken and a fuel-soaked rag is thrown in, and very soon thereafter, the home is set into a huge inferno. And, you know, Tommy Gilbert is the main suspect. Right, and a a figure is spotted across the street at the grave. There's a graveyard across the street, and he's a figure is spotted there, and he is the main suspect. He's never charged. He's questioned. But he is the main suspect in this fire. And, you know, parts of this house are from the 17th century. I mean, the whole thing was just it was a conflagration of, of, you know, so um, and of course, Gilbert is is the main suspect in that. But alleged, you know, we we don't know. But that's that's what they supposed. Um, So. So at this point, Peter Smith is just absolutely terrified. I mean, he's scared for his life. Yeah. And keep in mind, Tommy Gilbert is has a gun at this point. He and, does. I mean, unknown to anyone else. And he is rapidly devolving um, at this point. So, And, I mean, his parents do know about this fire. I mean, the Smiths, the senior Smiths do come and tell his parents, you know, you need to do something about your son. I mean, this is this is... People within their social circle do know about this. And, you know, this this all leads us, you know, to our final, in, you know, the final incident. And I think, at a, you know, the Gilberts were at 
a loss as to what to do, Laura. And they were having their own financial problems. They had downsized their, you know, from their apartments on the on the Upper East Side. Uh, Thomas Gilbert was not doing as well financially as he had done in the past. And so they reduced Tommy's allowance. And this was, you know, much was made of this in the press. And we'll get into that in a, in a little while. But they had reduced it from, what, a thousand... From a, uh, there are different amounts. There's that different. You hear a thousand to six hundred. You hear six hundred to three hundred. But it was it was dramatically reduced, and apparently this created a huge fear for Tommy. And, and, I, and I think Tommy was threatened by his father anyway. That was one of the things. Right. You know, he felt threatened by his and father. And quite resentful at his father. And this we hear from a number of people. That I'd he, love to get an allowance of a thousand dollars a week. Are you kidding? <laughs> Sign up. Help us on Patreon, okay? <laughs> I know, right? Um, yeah. So this this is obviously what what is is given as the motive, and um, whether we believe that or not, but this is obviously. So this takes us to January fourth in the afternoon, and um, Tommy Senior spends the morning playing tennis at the River Club, and he goes home, and he's spending an and you know a relaxing afternoon at home with his wife. Yep. And Tommy Jr. calls and says he wants to spend some time talking to his father about business. And they're and they're kind of psyched because he does drop a Tommy does drop off the radar. Like right. he would just kind of ghost them. And yeah. so he's showing up out of the blue, like, you know. Yeah, hey. they're happy to see him and he comes into the apartment and he asks his mother if he if she can go out, you know, to a local bodega and get a Coke and a sandwich. And a little bit. Of, I think her antenna, I think Shelly Gilbert, the mother, I think her antennae go up a bit because they don't keep soda in, you know, in the house. And Tommy knows this. Right. I mean, I think it goes up a little. I don't think that she, you know, has any anticipation about what's about to happen. I mean, she leaves the apartment and... Uh, you know, she doesn't complete the errand. I mean, she leaves the apartment and then kind of her antenna goes up and she returns to the apartment. And what does she find when she returns well, there? Well, she, she she finds, unfortunately, her husband. And her husband has a gunshot wound to his head and a, a gun in his hand. And, and Shelley Gilbert calls 911 and she, um, and she is relatively calm. You can hear the 911 call her hear her on the 911 call she's relatively calm and she says you know my my husband's been shot i think he's dead i think my son has shot him you know he's nuts we didn't think he was this nuts and that played of course again and again you know in tommy's eventual trial and tommy gets plucked from you know his he might have had a sort of internal hell but he gets plucked from his rather privileged lifestyle and put right into rikers island that's right and he's held without bail and 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 the press goes bananas over this case i mean the press laura i mean first of all good looking guy golden boy who's fallen off the pedestal and you know he, he's the spoiled brat who didn't you know whose daddy cut off his allowance and you know this is kind of like the New York Post version of it quote unquote you know right right yeah. it becomes a, the Ivy League killer the you know spoiled brat allowance killing and I think we see here that it's a much bigger picture than that I mean I think you and I 
disagree about this in many ways, but it's a much bigger picture than having someone's allowance cut off, and that's the motive motive for killing. But as we go into trial, you know, Tommy, you know, Tommy's defense is an insanity defense, and the prosecution drills hard into the fact that he is an entitled, privileged young man who's been given every advantage and hasn't been able to get his shit together, basically. Yeah. So that's what Craig Ortner said. He just basically, you know... And that's the district attorney. Yes, the assistant district attorney just basically, you know, painted him as a spoiled brat. And Craig... and, And Levine... Arnold Levine just, you know, he painted him, you know, he said he was living in his own personal hell. Yeah, the but he is, Gilbert, Tommy Gilbert is found competent to stand trial, meaning that he, you know, he, the judge, you know, the judge judged him to be, um, you know, to understand the process of right, the, the charges judge. against him and the whole, you know, process, I, even though Tommy Gilbert on the stand would you know, he'd spout off legalese. He would just spontaneously, he wouldn't show up. Not even, he, I mean, just from the gallery. I mean, he, he had to be removed from the court several times because he would rock in his chair. He would yell out, you know, objection. He would, he so, was very so, but disruptive. The, but the judge basically said, you can be mentally ill and still understand the charges against you. That's right. It's not enough to be... That's that's not enough of a defense. So he pleads insanity, basically, Gilbert does. Right. Yeah. But, and, you know... And, and I think his mother is supportive of this because she knows of his history of mental illness. She does, and she, she testifies in his defense. However, this winds up working against him. And how does it work against him, Laura? It works against him because several of the jurors say that her... His request... And her testifying that he requested that he he go out she go out for a coke shows premeditation that he was trying to clearly trying to clear the room. That's right. He was trying to clear get her out of the the house, you know. But and I I am sort of taking the position of the defense. But he does put the gun in his father's hand as well. He has a wherewithal to do that to try to make it look like a suicide, presumably. And, 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 you know, this is what the jury finds. The jury finds him that him guilty and responsible, and he receives 30 years to life. You know, it just struck me. Um, I, I wonder what the forensics work was. I mean, you know, in terms of the, um, you know, how close the gun was to that. I think that the gun was fairly close to Thomas Gilbert's senior's head right i mean i don't think it was ever in dispute so i you know i I don't think that that was an issue it was not a suicide it was not right it was clearly homicide it's just depend you know is he going to um is he going to be charged i mean is it is it first degree basically that's what the jury had to grapple there was no who done it in this right and i would argue that it was first degree i mean he had the wherewithal to purchase the gun he had the wherewithal to have his mother leave the apartment and that you know yes perhaps he's mentally ill but most people who are mentally ill are not dangerous. If I ever get charged with a crime, will you guys promise me that Laura does not end up on my <laughs> jury? Please. Okay, please. I'm begging you. Um, okay, I, I would 
I'm going to push back a little bit from a defense point of view. Okay. I, I think that Tommy Gilbert's mental illness was a, was a progressive, um, it was a, it was a progressive, uh, you know, uh, process basically. And it's one in which his parents now, you know, clearly this is being spun in the press, like we said, as the spoiled brat who, whose inheritance gets cut off. But there's a very sympathetic article about Shelley Gilbert in the, I think at the, you know, in an East Hampton paper, which, and she says basically like there was nothing we could do. We, we were maintaining his lifestyle so that we would have, be able to kind of keep tabs on him and know where he was. And, um, you know, but we, you know, that was our, that's what we were trying to do. We weren't trying to, you know, you know, we weren't trying to provide this lavish lifestyle I mean, like I said, I think it's very difficult to have an adult child who has mental health issues and, you know, and I think drug issues as well. And but in any case, the I mean, I'm sympathetic to that. And I feel I think it's a tragic story all around. However, I think that he was given every advantage and that, you know, there's lots of people who are mentally ill who aren't given all these resources. I agree completely. And don't many have, of whom have been my clients. Right. And know? don't have all these, re- you know, and I think we're fortunate here that more people aren't dead. Well, because I think the whole Smith family could be dead here. I think Peter Smith uh, is very lucky, you know, to be alive. and that he was extremely destructive. And we're kind of fortunate that there's only one casualty here. But there, I th- there's no question in my mind that Tommy Gilbert was dangerous. You know, the the question here, though, is is you know he had untreated mental illness, schizophrenia, whatever his I diagnosis. That. I do believe you know, that. And so. The, I mean, also the question in my mind, too, I mean, yes, he did purchase the gun, but the gun was several months prior to the murder. And the gun, he was so gone. If he thinks that SNL skits are about him, he might have gotten the gun for his own protection. Who knows? Yeah, but it still shows premeditation and planning. But... And I think that, you know, I think that obviously it brings up a good point of, of just better men- mental health care in prisons, which I think is what, what... I and I do agree that there the day of we do see a certain amount of intentionality. We do see intentionality with the, a certain amount of premeditation. However, um, you know. Thomas Gilbert, and it seems like the the lifestyle that the Gilberts led was sort of a lot of it was about, you know, appearance and and looking good. And, you know, he but he could not help. He couldn't help people, you know, he couldn't help that he was devolving mentally and people saw that all around him. I mean, I think the tragedy is that maybe had he gotten help earlier, he would have been able to not go down this path. Perhaps, you know? but, you know, he, he, you know, help was available to him earlier, you know, and, and he didn't take the help. I, I think that, you know, it evolved into this and he belongs in prison. And I think the real issue here becomes, should mental health help be available in prisons and i think that that's where the question lies and i think that or or should somebody like tommy gilbert be like his mom says because his mother still doesn't know whether he's receiving any you know any um help in prison 
So Thomas Gilbert is currently serving a 30 to life sentence at the Clinton Correctional at Dannemora. Right, right, New York, yes. And again, not hardcore. To, that's right. And, you know, we don't know if he's receiving any kind of mental mental health. Uh, we don't yeah. because of the HIPAA laws. No, we don't know. Yeah. And uh, he rarely takes visits even from his own mother. That's so. right. And we do want to mention that this is being made into a movie called Gilded Rage. And I believe it's being produced by Jake Gillenthal. That's right. So, we don't know who's going to play him yet, though. That's right. It's kind yeah. of exciting. But we want to leave you with this one quote from The Great Gatsby. In my younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my mind ever since. Whenever you feel like criticizing anyone, he told me, just remember that all the people in this world haven't had the advantages you've had. We are Ivy League Murders. Our music is composed by Russell Jarvis. Our researcher is Christy Wagner. We're all from Cambridge, repping 38. If you'd like to support us, please do the following. Hit the subscribe button, give us five stars, tell your friends to listen, and support us on our Patreon, where you can find us under Ivy League Murders. And now please hold on for the trailer from our new friends, Caroline and Charlie at the French Chronicles. Hi, True Crime Freaks. I'm Caroline. And I'm Charlie, and welcome to The French Chronicles. The French Chronicles is a podcast about spooky and creepy French true crimes, hosted in English by two French girls. There is more to France than the Eiffel Tower, Behez, and baguettes. Sit back and relax while we walk you down through the French gutter. They'll be more entertaining than the Cannes Festival, and we promise to teach you a couple curse words along the way, just to spice it up. New episodes every Wednesday. A bientôt! bientôt.